Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, your host for the Housing News Podcast and the CEO of HW Media. Today I'm joined by Steve Ozonian, the CEO of Williston Financial Group. In this conversation, which I have to be honest, went so much better than I ever could have expected. I got to have that true executive to executive conversation with Steve. And we went into some really important topics, talking about leading through inevitable cycles in the housing industry, connecting the housing sector across mortgage origination, real estate brokerage, and title. We talked about Steve's entrepreneurial leadership experience, including board involvement at LendingTree, Adam Data Solutions, Inside Real Estate, and most recently, Loan Depot. And we talked about the growth equation, balancing and weighing the options between organic and inorganic growth as WFG recently acquired a group of retail title operations from DOMA. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Steve Ozonian, CEO of Williston Financial Group. Yeah, I've been I've been hanging around the hoop for a long time. So um, I've I've had what I consider to be some very uh, challenging and interesting positions um, throughout the industry. And I like to view it as the real estate industry. I, I kind of hate the NAR, NAHB, ERC, MBA. You know, when I look at the industry after being in it for over 30 years, I think of only one thing, and that's the consumer experience. And that always relates to a consumer looking at it as one transaction. And yet, when you think about the way we all tend to approach it, it's all about title and mortgage and brokerage and all this stuff. But the consumer doesn't give a flip about all that. They just want to have a great experience and go through something that they can remember foundly, not be confused by all those disparate parts. So, you know, I love talking about it because after all these years and having been on the mortgage side, the brokerage side, the title side, um, you know, I've been able to put a lot of the puzzle pieces together. And quite frankly, that's really hard to do unless you've actually lived in each of these different verticals that make up the whole transaction. So Steve, can we, can we learn more? I want to go deep into your history in the industry, but I want to start with, with WFG. So talk, talk to us about the origin stories of Williston Financial Group. And, um, and I'd love to go deeper into the, the, the visions and the strategy that you're pulling together at WFG. Sure. Well, you know, that in, in some sense, that goes all the way back to the beginning of my career in Chicago where I was in grad school and I was working for Chicago Title and Trust in the title business. And I learned a lot about, you know, the title business and interacting with lenders and real estate brokers, which led me to Coldwell Banker, which led me to Prudential, which led me to Realtor.com, and then things like LendingTree and, and um, ultimately Williston. And so the Williston story is actually born out of a relationship that I've had for many years with Pat Stone, who is the founder of Williston. And as most people know, Pat was the president and CEO at Fidelity for many, many years uh, and helped grow that company into the number one player in the title side of the industry. And in 2011, 
um, Pat decided to start Williston and he and Golden Gate Capital got together and then they asked me to join the board of Williston. So did Golden, did Golden Gate come in at the beginning or did they come in as an investor after Pat was operating for a few years? No, they, they were at the very beginning. To start a national underwriter um, is a very big project and takes a lot of capital because you have to get the, um, you know, the underlying platform related to all the regulatory stuff with the insurance side of the business, the real estate side of the business. And to have the ability to have the stop gaps for losses on underwriting the title product. So it's not as simple as generally when an entrepreneur gets started and he or she takes a little bit of a risk with their own money or family money and they're off to the races and then they look for more capital. To get into the national title underwriting business, you've got to have a very strong capital partner. And the reason Golden Gate was very important and fortuitous is that Golden Gate runs a perpetual fund. So unlike a lot of other PE firms who have sort of redemption periods where they're going to sell the asset and their investors are going to get a return on their money, um, the way that Golden Gate operates is when, when funds put their money into Golden Gate, there is not a specified period of time that that money is going to be returned with or without, you know, uh, gains on it. Um, and they've held things for well over 15, 20 years at times. And so if you're going to be in this industry, meaning all of real estate, what do we know? It's cyclical. And, and we're seeing that more than ever right now. And, and it's a good thing that Golden Gate is the right kind of partner because they have the staying power and the emotional attitude about, hey, this is an up and down business in a lot of ways. That's a fascinating lens to put on it because like the, there's so much private capital that's been attracted to the housing and real estate sector in the last decade that is operating on traditional seven to 10 year fund cycles and three to five year hold cycles. That's right. And if you look at the problems in the marketplace right now, it should be no surprise to everyone that we were going to hit a wall. Now, the problem is we hit the wall very quickly and nobody expected things to go from record volume to this record downturn in such a short amount of time. But for people who were, you know, I buying most of us that have been around a while, and I ran a large corporate relocation operation at Prudential where we were buying 20,000 homes a year. We, you know, those of us that have done that in the past knew damn well that that party was going to be over, that there was no way it was sustainable as the market corrected and as you had devaluation in property values, you could not continue to play that game. So no surprise, you know, those guys now have been hit hard. And if you look at some of the other players where a lot of the money was easy to get and they were building technology that was meant to be transformational, really, if you think about this industry, meaning real estate overall, and I remember back to the late 90s, I was the chairman and CEO of Prudential's real estate group. And I had all these posters all over the place about the revolution is coming, uh, the consumers wising up, the internet's going to take over, we got to get with it. 
And I was giving speeches in the industry about the revolution that was forthcoming and was upon us. And what I've learned over the past 20 years since then is it's evolutionary, not revolutionary, because this business is hard to change. It has a lot of moving parts and it's cyclical. So there is no one person that can come in and suddenly change this whole way that we do business. Why are the MLSs still here? Because if you close them down, there won't be any damn business. You think about it, they are the utility of the brokerage industry and they're important to everyone. So even though they're old and archaic in a lot of cases, they're still necessary. That's fascinating. Okay, so uh, evolutionary instead of revolutionary, that kind of fits a similar frame as we've heard over the last five to 10 years of disruptors in the housing industry that ultimately kind of become partners to the ecosystem. So with an understanding of that, like disruption might not fit the same mold that it has in a lot of other sectors when venture and tech comes into play that we have work in more of an evolutionary industry. How does that focus your energy as an operator? Well, what, what it really means to me is the fundamentals still count. So in other words, you have to have an operating platform where all of the fundamental things you need to do to run a good, solid business in the environment that the business exists are in place. And, and all this sort of baloney about, well, I'm just going to generate more and more revenue and I'm going to take the market share and I'll worry about the profits later. That dog doesn't hunt once the market changes. And that's where a lot of people are having problems now because their net, net income in our EBITDA has been crushed or they had a lack of EBITDA and now they don't stand a chance because they're burning so much cash that they can't see straight. And so you've got to have the fundamentals in place. And really, if you're going to work the side hustle in a big way, you have to be able to sustain that and continue to invest in the business even when times get tough, like they are right now. So unit economics have to work even in a, a sector where venture investors are, you know, flooding in cash, which we know that that dynamic changed really quickly over the last 12 months. That was, that was kind of the, the, the dominable force that kind of forced like kind of a race to the bottom in some economic models. And the venture m money came in with a, uh, you know, a different strategy. Yeah. Very much a different strategy. And look, it may have worked in a couple other things. And everybody looks at Amazon and, and whatever. But, but actually, Amazon took many, many years to get to full force scale and, and disrupt the way they, they did. It didn't happen overnight. Um, and if you look at residential real estate, you know, the portal wars. When I, when I became the CEO of Realtor.com in the very late 90s, and we were actually fighting AT&T and Yahoo Real Estate at that time and Microsoft. Those were the players. So think about it. Microsoft with billions and billions of dollars and a technology company. And yet we beat them. We beat them. Why? Because we knew the fundamentals of the MLS and the brokerage operations in the United States. They were the drivers behind getting the listings populated for consumers. And when when people like Trulia and Zillow came along, they understood by then that it was all about listing inventory and cooperating 
with the MLSs in the realtor community. They didn't try to sunset them overnight. And to this day, I'm sure they'd you know, like to have more control over getting a piece of the pie out of every transaction because ultimately that's what they need to be success, really successful. Um, but, but nobody's been able to sort of walk into this industry and disrupt it in a, in a short amount of time. And because of the cycles we face, that makes it extra hard to do. Interesting. So I, I think we share a, a fundal, fundamental belief that we operate in this, this housing and real estate market that is, that should not be siloed off into a bunch of different functions. So, uh, HW Media, we're trying to connect the origination and brokerage and title and appraisal and valuation and home building ecosystem with, with information and data. And when I watch the strategy that you're, the playbook that you're running with WFG, we see this like, this strategy where you are going multi-dimensional and your your divisions and product suite. So can you give us a glimpse into what you're building at WFG and how the pieces are working together and fitting together to to kind of meet your vision of how the housing industry should operate and will operate in the long haul. Sure. So first of all the fundamentals were built um, from the ground up in a, in a very solid way from 2010 till now, meaning that that operating platform and the fundamentals of being in a business where you can end up with very large losses if you're not properly doing the business in that if you don't have the right amount of capital and the right loss reserves, you have to put that all in place. So we did that. In addition to that, what we've really bet the future on is being dynamic as it relates to customer service at a new level. And we created a division called My Home, which started out as a product. And the intent and vision of the product was to create more transparency and empowerment for the realtor, the lender, and the, um, and the title company in working together um, on each transaction. So my home has now grown into a full-blown company that we run. And that, that company's responsibility is all the digital tech and all the connective tissue that takes those fundamental things that happen in the sort of operating platform that we run to process orders. And it turns it into useful information and transparency and empowerment again for the consumer and, and the realtor and the lender. And by doing that, we're doing a couple of things. We're making the consumer in particular feel better about the transaction because now they have more insight into where things stand. They get to weigh in and make decisions, give us information. They keep the process moving much more quickly. The lender likes it because they get that same lens to look through and Things are getting done that they don't have to chase the consumer for. And the realtor really loves it because, the, you know, the thing that realtors hate and consumers hate about them is, you know, to have to spend their day just chasing details down instead of getting new listings or working with buyers. That really is not what they want to do. So we allow everybody to feel better about it. And at the end of the transaction, we allow the consumer to give a, an NPS score to WFG about how we did. 
and our NPS scores are off the charts. And that's because we really focus on customer service and we believe that transparency and empowerment is really what makes a huge difference. So when we think about what we're doing to differentiate ourselves, technology underlies the ability to get things done, but really it's all about the level of service we're providing to the lender, the realtor, and the consumer. And that's really what we believe in. And by, by the way, the offshoot from using the platform the way we do is we take time and cost out of, out of the equation. So, you, you know, we're not re-keying as much information. There's not as much telephone tag. There's not as much redundancy. It really helps to leverage the My Home platform we built so that everybody feels like this was much easier. The realtors like it because they can go on and do their business without having to do all the things that we naturally can do for them as long as we're in touch with the consumer. And being in touch by text and email makes things a lot more fluid than chasing people on the phone all day. Yeah, absolutely. We just finished a um, a four-part series with Zillow on, on this podcast feed uh, talking about the the modern the modern um, mortgage expectations and it did a lot on like lender and realtor partnership. And it was that, that point of communication that came up again and again and again as the thing that has changed the most, not just in how lenders and agents uh, communicate with, the, with each other, but also the, the consumer expectations and how some consumer experiences in other parts of their their digital and economic lives are, are changing consumer expectations on the, in, their, in their home buying experience. Well, you know, you mentioned LendingTree uh, earlier on we were talking, and I've been on the board there for over a dozen years um, and lead that board. And one of the things about LendingTree and the way it's been able to grow, and it's grown into many verticals beyond just mortgages, is because of the connectivity with the consumer and staying with the consumer and making sure the consumer has a way of knowing what's going on at all times with what they're interested in. And I think that's the world we live in now, right? A Domino's pizza is being made. You get to see every step. You get to see it being delivered. You get to track your UPS truck right to your house. I mean, people expect to know what the hell's going on. Yep. And it takes data connectivity to make, to make that happen. And, um, while, uh, manufacturing a mortgage should not be that difficult, it is a little more complex than a, than a pizza, but that complexity can be solved for if there's data coming in from title and data coming in from the valuation or appraisal partner to, to, to feed a relatively simple flow of, of order of operations that has to get done for the consumer to get to the finish line and actually take their keys. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I, I'm I'm also on the board of a company called Inside Real Estate, which has uh, KV Cores. It's you know key product, and and what we're building into that platform there is that ability to have the ingredients flow together in a seamless way. Because let's face it, the consumer starts with their search on the internet for a home. They're looking at homes before the loan officer or the realtor ever know about it. And then they start connecting. And then the key is, how do I get to be the one that they choose to connect with? And how do I put them into my CRM? 
How do I make that CRM information flow seamlessly into opening an escrow, getting a transaction rolling, and making the entire process feel like it's it's fluid and it's seamless and it's not fraught with who's on first and who's on second? Yeah. So how is that that board involvement with with Lending Tree and Inside Real Estate? And if I did my research correctly, you're also been on involved with the board of Adam Data Solutions. How have these businesses informed some of the um, strategies that you bring forward in your operating company? And then how have you kind of taken some of your knowledge as a as an operator from past CEO experience and current CEO experience to kind of give back to these uh, executives that you advise and lead at a board level? Well, to, to, to be fair, um, I've got some arrows in my back from, you know, learning the hard way earlier in my career because I was naive enough to think because I worked at Coldwell Banker for 10 years and helped grow that into a national company that I knew everything about brokerage or, or that when I was at Prudential and we had mortgage JVs, I knew everything about, you know, mortgages at that point and, 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 and so on and so forth. And what, what you learn over time is that to have the intuitive knowledge to understand how these pieces can fit together really takes understanding the different disciplines. So even if you don't run them every day, you do need to understand how they function and how these pieces can be put together into meaning, meaningful added value and that's what we've been trying to do at WFG. Again, not rev- not overnight, because it's really hard to do this stuff, you know, overnight. But I feel fortunate because after 30 years, I've been on the brokerage side, the mortgage side, the relocation side, um, the portal side, you know, the tech side. And that's helped me because every day I get up now, I just kind of know who to talk to, where to go, how to get problems solved because I've participated in, in all these different verticals and in many cases led those companies. So it's actually a lot more fun now than it used to be because I'm not second guessing or wondering who to go to or how to get things done. And, and it, makes, it makes my involvement with some of this uh, other board activity much more valuable, I think, for me and for the company. We have a Slack channel at HW that publishes all the new registered users for our HW events, like the Gathering of Eagles coming up in June and Housing Wire Annual coming up in October. I was just scrolling through the Gathering of Eagles feed on Slack, and wow, I am blown away with the quality of the attendees. Leaders from Keller Williams, Better Homes and Gardens, EXP, Compass, Hannah Holdings, Remax, and Home Services and incredible ecosystem partners like Zillow, Austin Board of Realtors, New Western Acquisitions, UWM and Bright MLS, just to name a few. If you aren't familiar with GOE, this is our real estate brokerage event for the most elite brokers, teams, MLS execs, and state and local association of realtors leaders. June 18th through 21st in Austin, Texas at the amazing Omni Barton Creek Resort. Visit the events tab on realtrends.com or housingwire.com to register.
So the CEOs that you've worked with as on the kind of investor board member side, have you seen any like best practices of the ways that CEOs should leverage their board of directors effectively to have a, a value add partnership? Yeah, a- a- absolutely. And that's a great question. Um, there are all kinds of different boards in terms of culture and purpose and so forth, as you would expect. But I think the best boards are, number one, diverse. You don't want all, you know, board puppets. You don't want all board, um, you know, former CEOs. You don't want all, um, you know, all people from brokerage or mortgage or whatever. What you want is a good diverse board that is made up of people who have views that go beyond just the vertical you happen to be in. And you want people who can bring ideas from what they see happening around the industry together and get people to collaborate and actually come up with new products and ideas because you have that diversity on the board. Very important. That's really interesting. I um, And kind of like flipping that question, as, as a experienced board member, is there anything that you've learned from some of those arrows in your quiver, the arrows in your back that you would uh, advise a new board member? I'm, um, so I've been leading our HW board for seven years now. I'm about a year and a half in on my first board, uh, of a company I'm an investor in, and, uh, it's, in the, it's a learning curve, help it being value add to a CEO. So any, any advice to board members and how they can be impactful? Yeah, I I think that if you're going to be on a board, you should only go on boards where you you know that you can contribute real value because, number one, you like what they do, right? It's almost like when you invest. You should invest probably in things that you know something about or you enjoy. And I think if you're going to be on a board, you should look at what the company does or stands for and immediately say, I'd like to be part of that. And then the second thing is you got to look at your fellow board members or these people that I want to be around and I want to spend time with. And are they collaborative? And is this board open to, you know, being transparent and allowing people to speak up and allowing people to really have an impact on the way the company is run? Um, so I have personally no interest in going on a board for board's sake. If I can be helpful, I'm, you know, and I like the space, I'm all in. Um, if I'm just going to be there because I happen to have a resume, that's a waste of time. (laughs) So you recently made some headlines about, uh, potentially joining the board of a a large national lender. how did you think about that decision of, uh, working with Loan Depot? Um, well, that, that, um, that one, you know, did did have a little drama uh, involved with it, but but at the heart of it was the the issue of bringing in a little more diversity in terms of operating experience to the board, particularly given the headwinds that the mortgage industry faces right now, and making sure that the thinking is both forward thinking and innovative thinking around the different constituents that are in this process. And by the way, what really happened to a lot of lenders is, the, you know, interest rates went up so fast that the wall came up real fast. And if you weren't real balanced in terms of all the products that you, you had to offer, 
that became a big problem, and particularly in an environment where purchase volume has fallen along with refi volume. Um, so I found it to be an interesting opportunity to be right at the heart of what was going on inside of a lender's mindset in this very challenging environment. And because of my real estate background and understanding how brokers you know, think and what's important to them and how that ties in with what's going on with the uh, large portals these days, it, it just became a you know, a really interesting situation to get involved with. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. So you mentioned the market a couple of times there, Steve. How do you uh how are you thinking about the the housing market that we operate in today? This um this rapidly changing interest rate, uh inventory constrained market that we are all navigating? Well, for sure, this is unique. And I think people have come to realize that no no matter how far you go back in history, Finding a market where we have rates rising the way they have, and yet we have low inventory, exceptionally low inventory, and we have prices still increasing in many markets, um, that combination of ingredients is almost unique as far back as I can think. And it's causing a lot of pain, right? Because refi market's dead, home equity market's, you know, alive, but so what? And then the purchase market, which is what everybody would count on in this environment where inventory would naturally be growing, is not happening. And so we, how do we relate to the, all that? Well, I think it's what everybody's saying, you know, the lock-in lock effect of exceptionally low rates is hurting. I think consumer confidence just about, you know, what the hell is going on in the world and what's the safe thing to do right now. First time home buyers, affordability, you know, all the things I would find in housing wire, you know, articles, they're all, they're all out there and they're all very true and accurate. I think the, the, uh, the problem is that no one is quite sure how fast we're going to come out of this and what the trajectory of the rest of this year really, really looks like. You know, everybody's been toying around, adjusting their estimates, Fannie, Freddie, I think MBA was lagging those two in terms of what they were saying. Maybe they've announced something now. But everybody's downgrading their view for the rest of 23. And when I look at our daily trends and where the volume's headed uh, at WFG and then on the, you know, the boards I'm on, nobody's happy. I mean, this is a tough environment because we all need scale. We all need five and a half million units or more on the purchase side to feel pretty good. And we're going to be maybe a million less than that. That's a lot of units missing. And that's why you're seeing the, the you know, the NAR numbers, they haven't even begun to fall the way they're going to fall, right? They're seeing people start to not renew their, their memberships. You know, I can remember when a million, a million one was a pretty much a high watermark. And what did we hit? Like a million six? So think yeah. about that. You're going to have three, four hundred thousand people probably not be in the business if this keeps up. Yeah, our um, Mike Simonson, who leads Altus Research for us, was actually tweeting about the realtor numbers th this morning, and like on a view that it's actually an incredibly efficient market for the number of realtors that are out there. The only problem is it lags or it lags transaction volume by by about twelve months. So the um, the kind of washout that we may see in some professional categories, um, you know, that's still, uh, 
that's still coming up the pipe. We haven't seen um, all of those realtors not renew or not do their their CE yet. I, I think we you know might face that on the loan originator side as well. We've seen some reduction in force there, but I think there's some originators who are going to opt for other career paths as their volume doesn't support their lifestyle. I, I think that's inevitable. It's already happening. As you said, there's a lag effect. Um, for sure, there are people who are hanging on to their licenses sort of as a side hustle now, or just for the hell of it, is a transition to other things. So, you know, if I can do that one or two referral a year and all I have to do is renew my license, that'll pay for it. So I'll just hang on to it. Those people are still being counted as active, you know, participants. So when you look at it, the real professional realtor and loan officer who does this for a living and they don't eat dinner without making things happen, they are out there hustling like never before. And you know what? They're damn good at it. They'll actually take market share in a market like this. Yeah. So let's talk market share. So that that's like the 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 topic du jour that I think that any operator, originator, salesperson, investor who's dedicated to this uh this cyclical industry that we've all call that we all call home um has made a dedication and found the mindset to support themselves through the the good times and the bad times. How do you maintain your focus on the the long term opportunity without distraction from you know these 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 market dislocations that may be short or maybe long term? Who knows? But like, how do you stay focused on the long term from a mindset perspective? Well, I I think there's sort of a recipe that that I follow that we follow, which is as the market adjusts the way it has, you have no choice but to take your costs down and make sure that, you know, you're not burning, um, you know, burning money, so to speak. But but you do that quickly and you do that alongside the predictive nature of the trends that you see happening. And look, all of us have been chasing the falling knife or what I call chasing the infection for well over a year now. And that's unfortunate, right? Because you would hope it would have been over with and we'd see rates starting to come down and we could stabilize our workforce and just get back at it. So on one hand, we have to practice those fundamentals of being appropriately staffed at the right fighting weight for the fight we're in. And at the same time, there's an opportunity to do process improvement, right? We got a little breather from the record volume. So now it's time to improve some things and get those efficiencies And then last but not least are the growth initiatives that you need to continue to stay focused on despite being in this market. So WFT is a good example because we don't have any debt on our balance sheet. We're not leveraged. We're not, you know, we're not bank constrained. We're not, you know, we're not worried about things that a lot of people have to worry about because they're worried about, well, you know, I'm looking over my shoulder because I need money, you know, two, three quarters out. We don't have that problem at all. So we're investing in things like the acquisition we just did in Northern California of, uh, you know, uh, 17 locations. And, and we're looking for opportunities to bolt on operations that will help create accretive gains for WFG and market share gains, even at a time where the market is challenging. So the deal you're referencing was acquiring retail operations from from Doma, and uh, 
And that's a deal that kind of immediately bolsters title operations. And if I understand the model correctly, also bolsters distribution capabilities for my home and other divisions inside of WFG. Am I thinking of that the right way? Yeah, no, you are. Um, we, we had an existing operation in Northern California that was started from scratch, but we, we wanted to start to increase our penetration from Central California through Northern California because we're strong in Southern California. And when the opportunity became to grab what really was a very strong DOMA op, you know, operation in Northern California, uh, we really went after it because it gave us immediate gains that would have taken us years to achieve organically. That's always a, you know, that's every operator's got a different perspective on organic versus inorganic growth. And, um, yeah, I, <laughs> M&A banker by background. So I, you know, I have my, uh, inclinations on, on the way that I, I like to grow, but for, for me, acquisitive growth is most attractive because of speed. And, um, you can always run the, I was doing this with our COO yesterday. Like, Hey, we could go after this target for, for X million, or we could build it for less than that. But the speed is like the big question. And so does speed come into like one of your big, like investment committee, like decision topics, when you think about like the timing of a cyclical market and wanting to be positioned at the right stages with the right assets? Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, Pat Stone has been around a long time. He and I had very, uh, very similar feelings about the marketplace in sort of 19, 2021, where, you know, everybody was looking for peak multiples on peak earnings. <laughs> and, and if you're in a cyclical business, where unfortunately, even if you're growing market share, Consistently, right? Because I can grow market share in a down market, but my revenue and my net income may decline while I'm growing market share. I still have to be cautious about when I'm paying for things. Yep. Because if all of a sudden the things I'm buying are not delivering what I expected and they're draining cash, then I have less cash to go and invest in things that are now more attractive in a softer market. And that's what we're finding. We've probably, we have a deal pipeline, you know, a dozen opportunities long right now that we're looking at because now things are much more attractive. How have you, so like M&A opportunities are going to be different at different points in a cycle. How have you built and maintained the, the corporate development and integration muscle in your organization to be ready to pounce when you do have a deal pipe that's a dozen like opportunities deep? Sure. Well, we, we have a biz dev team, small team, you know, about four people that are working with, uh, you know, IBs, bankers, and, and people who are out there championing deals. Um, they're also doing things organically um, in areas where we know that we want growth. And then in addition to that, we have people from legal, finance, and operations that are tied to the deal team. So as the deal starts to move forward, they get integrated into all the discussions that are being had about analysis around the value of the deal, synergies, um, and what we're going to have to do to actually pull it off once there's a, a physical signing and we got to go to work. 
As an example, we dropped half a dozen people in Northern California uh, two days before the announcement, and they were there ready to go into every office and working with the operators that came alongside of us. And so that made it very easy. And out of, I don't know, roughly 130 people, we had 128 of them signed up within two and a half days. That's amazing. That's a, that's an incredible retention rate for, for a deal. Uh, is there anything like cultural messaging or like what, what, what do you think? Like, what was the cause for being able to retain all but like less than one and a half percent of the acquired team members? Um, I, I think that WFG, um, has developed a culture that has very little turnover in it. And that's because we've created an environment where we believe that people should be allowed to do what they do and do it really well. Now, we have an operating platform and, you know, there are rules for the road with things like wire transfers and stuff that you got to comply with at all times. But we really um, uh, manage the company against predictive modeling and allowing people to stay within the lines on their productivity, their personal cost ratios, um, the amount of uh, margin that we expect, the amount of market share. And, and if, they're, if they're doing that, then, then they get a lot of autonomy. We have very few layers of management. Steve, as we kind of move toward the, the end of our conversation, um, we've talked a lot about cycles and, and opportunities. I'm curious from your you know, vantage point working across multiple housing cycles and, and different parts of the industry, do you think there's any service or solution or like end market categories where like the pain hasn't been fully felt yet? And like, we're going to see like more, um, you know, like m more reduction in force, cost control, like any parts of the industry that you'd be ultra concerned about? Um, well, hopefully we've been through the vast majority of it now. Um, you know, nobody knows exactly where rates are going, but hopefully they've, they've kind of plateaued around seven and we'll come down from there. And I think as long as rates recede, we'll see a pickup. You know, I think the Fed wants to see more unemployment. Um, and, and then they'll, they'll kind of back down a little bit on the rate thing. So, if inventory starts to climb and rates recede, we're all going to feel like, you know, we've, we've seen the worst of it. I got to admit, if rates go up above seven and unemployment stays exceptionally low and inventory continues to be at historic lows, then the pain won't be over because, you know, it's just it's just really hard. I mean, you get down to your fixed overhead that you've got to have, and you don't want to ruin a company by continuing to take costs out to the point of, you know, ruining the core. But but we are all going to have to sustain a pretty rough market for another few months. And, and I think we're prepared to do that. And we're going to continue to try to grow through M&A and, and bringing on more customers and taking market share. So we're, we're very positive about our ability to do that. Um, but when I look around, you know, the brokerage mortgage side of the business, you know, a lot of pain in the mortgage side very early on, particularly the, the firms that were heavy in refi. Um, now you're seeing the really innovative, creative mortgage companies step out with, you know, the one day mortgage and, 
you know, the things that some are doing to try to attract that purchase business in that they need to be self-sustaining. And on the brokerage side, you're seeing a lot of the brokers go to JVs in mortgage and title to try to create more revenue and vertically based income because they need it to cover their fixed overhead. So I think the scramble now is how do I generate more revenue and get more business and, and, and I have to stop thinking about just cost cutting because at some point that's not healthy. The, um, we have our Real Trends Gathering of Eagles event coming up in a, a week or two from now. And the, one of the biggest topics at Gathering of Eagles year in, year out is core services and diversification and to, into mortgage, insurance, title. Do, do you think there's a, like, I think that's a good thing for the broker or is there a point of like, over focus on the other service categories and like the core business of supporting agents and teams to buy and sell homes gets neglected a little bit. Like what's your kind of take on the, the core services focus that is so strong? Well, th- this actually goes way back in time. And I can remember talking with Steve Murray back in the early real trends days where, where this topic was on the agenda. Um, and over the years, some brokers have really made it work, but most have not. Um, you know, things like RESPA getting away and, and, and it's hard to do and the agents are independent and so forth. But I think the tide has turned. I think that brokers realize that they need to provide more service for the consumer and their agents. And, and by getting into mortgage entitled JVs, if they can provide a better level of service, for the consumer and take care of their agents. And there's different models they they employ, but if they can simply deliver a better service and product, they will attract and retain more agents. And I call those services primary services, by the way, because the vast, vast majority of them are required on every transaction. So it's not like an ancillary thing. It's tied to almost every transaction that happens. So yes, if I were a broker, I would be all in on getting as much vert- vertical integration set into the transaction. And I would, I would work with my agents to make sure that they get to participate in a way where they feel like they're getting true value from what I'm doing. Steve, can't thank you enough for joining us today, sharing your experience, transparent view into your business and how you're thinking about growth. Uh, cheers to you and good, good luck as you, uh, as you, you run the, the gauntlet of growth in a tough market. Uh, I'm rooting for you. Well, thanks very much. Look forward to seeing you soon, hopefully. And uh, you're doing a great job at Housing Wire. Thank you. And that is a wrap for today's episode. Before we break, I want to bring awareness to things happening at HW Media that I care a lot about. These are things that we're investing a lot of time and resources into, and I think you should be aware of them because they will help you and your business. The first thing I want to raise some awareness to are our two HW Media events. First is the Gathering of Eagles. The Gathering of Eagles has been hosted by Real Trends and put on for over 30 years at this point. This year, we're bringing the event to Austin, Texas, June 18th through 21st at the Omni Barton Creek Resort. This is HW's real estate brokerage and sales focused event, but it brings together executives from across the housing ecosystem to forge opportunities and develop ways to work together to better serve home buyers and sellers 
both from their brokerage needs, as well as their financing, insurance, and other core services needs. Incredible event. I hope you'll check it out on Real Trends or on Housing Wire. Two, Housing Wire Annual. Housing Wire Annual this year is October 10th through 12th, also in Austin, Texas, at the Hyatt Lost Pines Resort. This is our event to bring together the entire housing community to talk about what's happening in mortgage. This is not the place to whine and talk about your problems. This is the place for winners to gain more market share and develop strategies that help them build their businesses faster than any benchmark that they or their peers can set. Join us at Housing Wire Annual to set forward the strategies, partnerships, and uncover the opportunities to help you grow your mortgage and real estate business faster than you ever imagined. And that's it. That's a wrap for today. Check out Housing Wire Annual. Check out Gathering of Eagles. These are resources and opportunities that will serve you well. Have a great day.